Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hello, dear listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogs. We're here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Marie. What's going on? What's the story? How you doing? I'll tell you. Um, next time, I know I say this like every single time we go in deep on a subject. Next time we have to do butterflies and rainbows and kitties again, man, because this this is like intense. Yeah. The stuff on the Unabomber is intense and it's like, it is, it's dark and it's intense. It's really, really fascinating. And it's also, you know, again, it just sort of, it sort of makes you question a lot of the stuff that was happening at this time period, but then even still now, as if we need to question anything else in today's modern society, you know, got this on top of it now. There's just so much there that makes it, yeah, that just makes it hard to, um, just makes it hard to wrap your head around kind of the testing that we did, the way that science has kind of progressed and, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, we think about we're standing on the shoulders of giants when we're in science, but in some ways too, we're, you know, in some ways we're not all those giants were friendly, Mm-mm. you know, not all those giants Mm-mm. were good. were good people. So it's a little it's seeming like less and less. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a little, it's a little the more rough. roads. You have me travel down cogs. I swear to God. Yeah. The more a, my uh, faith in humanity just, just gets that extra shake. That's great. Thank it's you. It's a little rough. All right. So this episode, we're going to talk about uh, Edward or Te- Edward, Tedward, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber and his general Harvard milkiness which is what I'm going to call this episode, thought of it the other day, laughed to myself for a long time, and it's what we're sticking to, so I'm excited. Oh, I liked a hell of a time at Harvard. Oh, hell of a, okay, fine, we'll do hell of a time at Harvard. That's fine, too. Hashtag team milkiness. All right, Jake, roll the tape. Okay, so Marie. So Chris. Unabomber. Unabomber goes to college. Baby's day out. We're doing it. We're finally here. We're at Harvard. It seemed like such a great idea, right? I mean, brilliant mind. Sure, he's a little reclusive. He's quiet. He's a little, he's a little quote unquote strange, but you know, that's because he's just so smart. Right. So let's, you know, he's 16. Let's send him to, you know, he's got a scholarship to one of the most prestigious universities 
in the world? Why wouldn't you do that? Right. Well, you know, it's funny. It's funny in doing the research for this. Every single source I read, I wish that I had read it at the start of the series. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like everything I'm like, oh, that would have been a cool thing to bring up then. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that one thing that I got from an article that we're going to be quoting a lot here, and it's actually from uh, it's it is from Alston Chase from June 2000, the, an article from the Atlantic called Harvard and the making of the Unabomber. Right. And so Murray, you actually, um, you actually started reading Found this book. Yes. It's, it is, uh, Alston chase Harvard and the Unabomber, the education of an American terrorist. And it is not electronically, um, accessible. So you actually have to buy the paper book, mm-hmm. but it's, it's really, really in depth. So he interviewed, the author interviewed and had correspondence with uh, Kaczynski. And while it's mostly about, I would say like the, the second half is about Harvard. It's so much about um, the FBI, uh, his childhood, how he, you know, kind of framed all of his thoughts and, and started to work on his manifesto. And I can only read it's it's fascinating, but I can only read like a little bit at a time because it's also really uniquely disturbing in that this man had this very scientific method about like they have they have snippets that will I will read later um, in the like the next episode about about his trial and error with with killing people with the bomb. Right, a very scientific approach generally to life. Yes. Which was kind yeah. of instilled in him at Harvard. What's well what's yeah. cool what's cool about the book and that article especially, and if you want a taste of what the book is like, oh, I yeah. suggest reading that article. It's really great. It's still available for free online through the Atlantic. Is so this guy, uh, Alston Chase, actually was at Harvard around the same time as Kaczynski. I think I think he said he entered mm-hmm. like two years after he uh, graduated. Mm. And he actually had kind of the same feelings as Kaczynski, you know, and so when the Unabomber bombing started happening, he was kind of like, man, I kind of agree with this guy. Like Alston, he actually moved to Montana, not like I think he said 60 miles south of where Kaczynski's cabin was with his wife for him and his wife to live isolated in the woods. You know, like it's it's wild that he he really had a kinship with Kaczynski and then actually became you know, again, friends, I think is a hard word for someone like Kaczynski, but at least became mm-hmm. uh, correspondence, right? Wrote to him quite a bit in, in uh, when he was in prison. Mm-hmm. Now, so he starts off, Kaczynski starts off in, in Harvard. He's in the, the class of 1962. But if you remember, he joins at the age of 16 is when he gets to Harvard. And actually, so in in further researching and stuff, the parents, like friends of the family and teachers that Kaczynski knew and was friendly with in high school and had good relationships with, warned the parents that this was a bad idea. Warned them that, you know, you're pushing Ted too hard. He's like, it's great. He got into Harvard, whatever. Give him another couple years before he goes. Because he's clearly... Clearly something's a little, you know, we just don't think it'll be good for him. Whatever, right? They just had a feeling. or He needs to emotionally mature. 
Exactly. Right. And that's yeah. the word that they keep using, right? Is he's oh. he's intellectually he's way out there, but maturity wise, he's still just a kid. You know? And so it's fascinating to me that, you know, in the first episode we touched on this this kind of dualism between the view Kaczynski had of his childhood and the view that David and his mother kind of pushed out there about him. Mm-hmm. And they made this narrative that Kaczynski was was insane. But then in reading quotes from his teachers and his friends in high school last episode, and then even towards in 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 Harvard, you know, the evidence almost for Kaczynski's point of view towards his childhood kind of starts to add up, you know, which to me was a little shocking. I didn't expect it to kind of build as as strong a case in my own mind, I guess, you know, and at least for the idea that he was being pushed out there before he was ready. Right. And now mm-hmm. whether or not that was happening, whether or not that was happening because of his parent, you know, his, his view is that this was happening because his parents um, only cared about his brain, only cared about, sh- you know, showing the neighbors and being the best family, right. Being the most prestigious family in the block. Our son went to Harvard at 16, right. Versus a family that just genuinely didn't know how to deal with a kid who was a genius. But so, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think really quickly, I think that that's that's where you go back and forth on because it's still like, well, how how accurate is any one view, right? How accurate is his view on his own life and his own being? Because he's he's not, I would say, he's not the most reliable narrator either, right? Like no. his parents and his family were like, hey, this is, you know, again, they they didn't they didn't necessarily have a prideful or boastful when, you know, I, I, I think it's like it meets somewhere in the middle is what my imagine, you know, is what I imagine is actually closer to the truth. Cause yeah, if you read it from him, he's like, and the, the accounts that he's, that people are like, Hey, you know, he's, he's not ready for this yet, but I, I don't know. I also think, well, it's like, you think that it's again, it's like in their best interest. It's not a, it's, from what I was reading on in in um in the other book that his brother wrote, it was really that they wanted what was best for him, and they just thought that you know, like anything else, he will adapt or maybe right. will even help him adapt more. But then you read like that this was about about their ego and about them wanting to be the most you know again the most prestigious, and this will bring prestige to his family, and it's like that sort of back and forth. I mean, I can imagine. Well, it's kind of what all it's like him, right? It's kind of Especially. what all kids with what all kids with parents who really want them to succeed. It's what you know. It's the it's the stage parent story, right? <laughs> it really is. You know what I mean? He's he's Macaulay Culkin with bombs. No, not to say Macaulay. You know, we don't know about Macaulay Culkin's he's upcoming Macaulay plans. Just in case, Macaulay Culkin with bombs. So I think we have, I think we have a new. Uh, I I think we have a t shirt. Oh my goodness! Yes, so it's at least a sticker. At Sorry, least a sticker. Gone. No, so he uh, he joined this school in 1958, and so parents were asked to profile their children in little like snippets. And so Wanda, his mom, wrote, "Quote: Much of his time is spent at home reading and contriving numerous gadgets made up of wood, string, wire, tape, lenses, gears, wheels, etc. That test our various principles in physics." His table and desk are always a mess of test tubes, chemicals, batteries, ground coal, etc. He will miss greatly, I think, this browsing and puttering in his messy makeshift lab. Mm-hmm. End quote. 
you know, it, it like sounds like my kind of childhood, but <laughs> it doesn't, you know, he's going to miss his friends. He's going to miss his family, right? He's not going to miss his friends or family. He's going to miss his batteries no. and coal. Yes, he's going to, he's, but he's looking forward to the chance to maybe get his hands on some high grade plutonium. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> so, so I, yeah. Oh Lord. Oh. So he, uh, so originally when he goes to Harvard, he majored in physics, but then he switched over to mathematics. Uh, but at Harvard, he didn't particularly excel, but he, he maintained a B average, which I mean, still a 16 year old at Harvard with a B average heads and shoulders smarter than I am. Right. Like I, that kid's killing it right now, <laughs> but he spent a tremendous amount of his time studying. He didn't really make close friends, but did have some kind of friends just generally like, like again, shallow kind of friendships. So he lived in a building. Uh, he lived in a building at eight Prescott street, which is outside of Harvard yard. And this was a, this was a building that was designed specifically for what at the time was known as precocious undergrads, but which you know, he lived in the freak dorm, right? Like he lived, he lived in the dorm for weirdos. He lived in the dorm of kids, of young kids, of kids from poor families, of, you know, kids from uh, places that made them not fit into the kind of waspy New England uh, culture of, of entitlement and, and mm -hmm. prestige and um, privilege, really, that Harvard had at the time, especially before it, it really tried to bring in more students of, you know, from different communities. Right. And so his, his, yes. his roommates talk about how, how strange he was. They say he played trombone at all hours of the night, but they say he was pretty good. But mm -hmm. when he was studying, yeah. he would rock back and forth rhythmically. And the, mm -hmm. the, the noise it made would like drive them crazy. Right. But again, there's like a, there's a clear shift in his, his way of behavior from freshman year to sophomore year and after. And, and that's kind of what, comes into these these experiments but so this is a quote from the atlantic it's kind of a long quote but this atlantic article is really great so there's gonna be a couple long quotes quote much has been made of kaczynski's being a loner and of his having been further isolated by harvard's famed snobbish snobbism snobbism was indeed pervasive at harvard back then a single false sartorial step could brand one an outcast and kaczynski looked shabby he owned just two pairs of slacks and only a few shirts Although he washed these each week in the coin-operated machine in the basement of the house next door to Aide Prescott, they became increasingly ragtag. But it is a mistake to exaggerate Kaczynski's isolation. Most public high schoolers at Harvard in those days, including Kaczynski, viewed the Tweedy in-crowd as so many buttoned-down buffoons who did not realize how ridiculous they looked. And the evidence is that Kaczynski was neither exceptionally a loner nor, at least in his early years at Harvard, alienated from the school or his peers. Harvard was a tremendous thing for me, Kaczynski wrote in an unpublished autobiography that he completed in 98 and showed to me. I got something that I had been needing all along without knowing it, namely hard work requiring self-discipline and strenuous exercises of my abilities. I threw myself into this. I thrived on it. Feeling the strength of my own will, I became enthusiastic about willpower. Freshmen were required to participate in sports, so Kaczynski took up swimming and then wrestling. He played the trombone as he had in high school, even joining the Harvard band, which he quit almost as soon as he learned that he would have to attend drill sessions. <laughs> he played pickup basketball. He made a few friends. One of his housemates, Gerald Burns, remembers sitting with Kaczynski in an all-night cafeteria 
arguing about the philosophy of Kant. After Kaczynski's arrest, Burns wrote to the anarchist journal Fifth Estate that Kaczynski was as normal as I am now. It was just harder on him because he was much younger than his classmates. And indeed, most reports of his teachers, his academic advisor, his housemaster, and the health services staff suggest that Kaczynski was in his, was in his first year at Harvard entirely balanced, although tending to be a loner. The health services doctor who interviewed Kaczynski as part of the medical examination Harvard required for all freshmen observed. Good impression created. Attractive. Which seems a little weird for the uh, doctor to mm. write. Mm. But okay, attract, yeah, attractive. Strange. Attractive. <laughs> mature for age. Relaxed. Talks easily, fluently, and pleasantly. Likes mm. people and gets on well with them. May have many acquaintances but makes his friends carefully. Prefers to be by himself part of the time at least. Maybe slightly shy. Essentially a practical and realistic planner and an efficient worker. Exceedingly stable, well integrated, and feels secure within himself. Usually very adaptable, may have many achievements and satisfactions. The doctor further described Kaczynski thus, pleasant young man who is below usual college entrance age. Apparently a good mathematician, but seems to be gifted in this direction only. Plans not crystallized yet, but this is to be expected at his age. Is slightly shy and retiring, but not to any abnormal extent. Should be a steady worker, end quote. Boy, was that doctor wrong. <laughs> you, th- you, think, you think he got what? egg no, on his face? He was, he was a steady worker. <laughs> Gotta give him that. He sure was a steady worker. He was so, a very steady worker. Well, so what's, what's fascinating about this, right, is in his freshman year, he's just like a normal guy. Well, yes, but this is also, again, so this is, this is, I would say, somewhat removed from especially like with doctors, like that doctor saw him once probably. Right. So, right. And he was on his best behavior. Yeah. And so it's like, and also I think whatever, whatever afflicted him may not have come, you know, to total fruition. Like if he was schizophrenic or anything along those lines, it hadn't shown itself yet at this stage, but I agree with you. Like there is nothing in this description of him that is any different than anyone else that is, you know, that is just a, a certain type of person going to college. No. Right? And, yeah. And, and I can playing I, the trombone, which is hysterical, which is kind of funny, which is apps. Can you just and imagine? And then he was like, wait a minute, I have to do, I have to go marching drills. No. I was going to say, can you imagine him just like, right? Like ridiculous, absolutely insanity. Um, So he, the thing that I find fascinating with this too is, and this, and I think this speaks further to this, right? Is, he he appeared normal, like you're saying, right? He appeared normal, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean he was. It doesn't. That doesn't mean he didn't have, like you were saying, underlying hints of of a of a mental disorder or of violence or of anything else, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. appear normal until they're not, you know. And I <laughs> right. can speak. And I can speak from personal experience. Like, it, even if even if you are trying to like go to a doctor and say, Hey, I think I'm a little bit more anxious than the normal person. I'd like a little help with this. They're like, you know, most doctors are like, yeah, you're probably not though. You're probably fine. You'll just deal with it. You know, it it takes, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of getting to know someone because, you know, because for a lot of these mental health issues, a, a, a tremendous part of the diagnosis is, does it, does it impact and affect daily life negatively? Right. And that you're not going to get, you know, everyone has little bits of mental tricks or mental errors or thinking errors or whatever that you can look up in the DSM five and say, 
oh my god, like this thing says, you know, you know, what's that thing from um Parks and Recreation when he looks up online what Leslie has and he's like, I think you have uh, oh, internet connectivity issues. Oh yes. <laughs> Whatever, right? Like it just a list of symptoms isn't useful. What you really no. need is how how much does it actually affect your daily life? And so anyways, yes. I but I thought that was kind of I thought those quotes from the doctor were fascinating because, you know, looking back it on is. it, like, I wonder if that doctor was like, I wonder where those notes are. You know, Dang, I'm just going oh, to pencil in the Atlantic. Yes. I'm going to pencil in something like he smells like gunpowder. I don't know. What, um, well, especially at this time, somebody going to Harvard that has was such a high achiever wouldn't necessarily be associated with mental illness. No, it, they they would right? not. I mean, in this general. wasn't a diagnosis that you would be like looking for. No, you just weren't looking for it at all at this time. In in a lot of ways, like you know, he was well dressed. He came from a good family. He had this you know this outer veneer of quote unquote normalcy. If anything, he was gifted. He's just a little quiet. No, right. right? If, so if, it's like if, it couldn't be anything wrong with him. There's everything right with him. Right. right. It's it, like. It's the it's the late fifties, early sixties. If he had yeah. walked in there with a with a marijuana, you know, with with smelling <laughs> like weed, they would have yes. been like, "He's a yes. he's a communist reactionary." You know, he's they a communist. Re- or if he had maybe brought in an African American girlfriend, they would have they would have had an issue with that. Oh, yeah, that would yeah. have been abnormal. But like, you know, and he was he was he was he he looked mature, right? Too. So he was tall. He looked mature, handsome. Again, fluent and, you know, fluent and pleasant until you're not. Until you're not. So until you're not. So what's what's really interesting with this Atlantic piece and the book is that because the author went to Harvard at the same time, they're Mm -hmm. able to kind of develop a overview of kind of what it was that Ted was taught there. And so, Mm -hmm. again, we got to remember, this is 19. This is the late 1950s, early 60s. Right. This spans from. 58 to 62, his years at Harvard. And so at this point, the government had kind of created what was known as the Red Book. And what this was, was it was a way to try and basically ensure that all American students at American universities were getting a good liberal political education. Mm -hmm. They were being taught to be good Americans, good capitalists, They were not being taught, you know, uh, this is the point where, you know, Marxism on campus was still a kind of uh, like a dirty, dirty kind of kind of word. Right. Yep. But the thing was that there was a pushback, though, from those academics, because, you know, again, like a lot of our if if you get into any kind of academic philosophy or any kind of academic, uh, you know, psychology or sociology, anthropology, whatever, a lot of that liberal education that comes from those things is, is, you know, Marxism was extremely, um, was fundamental to a lot of those fields, or at least was very, very, you know, important to their development. And so to say that they couldn't teach ideas that weren't prescribed in this general education book, that was what the red book kind of put out there, right. To think that they would would have to teach only Judeo Christian morals, and mm-hmm. talk about, you know, their view of history and their view of science and their view of whatever rankled a couple feathers. And so there was a real mismatch amongst the faculty between kind of this very positivist message message and a more 
relativist message of, right? So on the one hand, you have the American way, red, white, and blue. We're always right. And, you know, capitalism is the answer and freedom is always a good thing. Democracy is the best, whatever. Right. And on the other We're hand, teaching the, white history, like there's only very limited everything. Yes. One right. point and of the, view. And then on the other hand, you have the viewpoint of, you know, I mean, just think about the philosophers that were important at this time period. We're talking about people like uh, Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, right? Mm -hmm. Simone Bouvier. Like these people were talking about how, and you know, Carl Jung, like we were, these, the the academics at the time were talking about how meaningless (laughs) and how, you know, how uh, humans were meat machines and there was no free will. And, you know, these ideas about technology being good for technology's sake were being questioned by every leading academic at the time. Yeah. Right. Mm. Maybe not in the sciences where they were making these big strides, but we had just dropped the atomic bombs. Right. right? We just saw the horrors that science and technology could do both in the concentration camps in just how, you know, think about like world war one and then world war two happened basically back to back. The amount of loss of life was staggering at that time period. Yeah. And we just kind of came down from this high of, you know, look at the cool bombs we could make to, Oh my God, should, should we have this power? Yes. And we're gearing up for more military conflict, that's even murkier and harder to define. Right. Going into the sixties. Yeah. And so, um, so this is again, a big, a larger quote from this Atlantic piece. And so what this is often described of described as is the Harvard culture of despair. And so what it did was set up this idea, two competing messages. The first was that science and technological progress was in its essence, destructive for human beings. But two, that science and the drive for more technology was unstoppable. And it's kind of a very similar idea to what I think a lot of people in in universities today get as well, depending on Mm -hmm. the field that they're in. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. But it is still, it is still a very popular line of thinking. So this is again, a quote from this. So quote, What impact did this reading have on us? Speaking as a college professor, as a former college professor, I can say that most curricula have absolutely no effect on most students, but readings can have a profound effect on some students, especially the brightest, most conscientious and least mature. Certainly the intellectual climate generated by Gen Ed informed Kaczynski's developing views. And so sidebar, Gen Ed was the, was the the catch all phrase for this kind of, general education in liberal arts that was supposed to be given to all students. Mm-hmm. And so anyone in the United States has taken gen ed classes. They're still a thing. They've changed a little bit, right? I know I took a lot of gen ed classes. I know a lot about, uh, Renaissance core curriculum. Art. Yes. Yeah. Core curriculum. It's, it's to try and make you a well-bound, a well-balanced, uh, individual, if you will. Exactly. So, okay. You did not. And by the way, you did not take Renaissance. You do not know anything about Renaissance art anymore. Do you? No, no, but I did take, I did take a course on it though, but I did not, again, like this guy says, most curricula have absolutely no effect on most students, Marie. I was most students. All right. Quote, certainly the intellectual climate generated by Jan Ed informed Kaczynski's developing views. The Unabomber philosophy bears a striking resemblance to many parts of Harvard's Gen Ed syllabus. 
Its anti-technology message and its despairing depiction of the sinister forces that lie beneath the surface of civilization, its emphasis on the alienation of the individual and on the threat that science poses to human values, all these were in the readings. And these kinds of ideas did not affect Kaczynski alone. They reached an entire generation and beyond. Gen Ed had more than an intellectual impact. According to a study of Harvard and Radcliffe undergraduates that included Kaczynski's class of 1962, conducted by William G. Perry, Jr., the director of the university's Bureau of Study Council, the undergraduate curriculum had a profound impact on the emotions, the attitudes, and even the health of some students. According to Perry, intellectual development for Harvard and Radcliffe undergraduates typically encompassed a progression from a simplistic, dualistic view of reality to an increasingly relativistic and contingent one. Entering freshmen tend to favor simple over complex solutions and to divide the world into truth and falsehood, good and bad, friend and foe. Yet in most of their college courses, especially in the social sciences and the humanities, they're taught that truth is relative. Most accept this, but a number cannot. They react against relativism by clinging more fiercely to an absolute view of the world. To some of these students in Perry's words, science and mathematics still seem to offer hope. Nevertheless, Perry wrote, regression into dualism is not a happy development, for it calls for an enemy. Dualists in a relativistic environment tend to see themselves as surrounded. They become increasingly lonely and alienated. This attitude requires an equally absolutistic, absolutistic rejection of any establishment, and can call forth in its defense hate, rejection, and denial of all distinctions but one, Perry wrote. The tendency is towards paranoia. As is, as is evident in his writings, Kaczynski rejected the complexity and relativism he found in the humanities and the social sciences. He embraced both the dualistic cognitive style of mathematics and gen ed's anti-technology message. And perhaps most important, he absorbed the message of positivism, which demanded value-neutral reasoning and preached that, as Kaczynski would later express it in his journal, there was no logical justification for morality, end quote. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So to kind of to kind of break this down a little bit more for the listeners, right? There's this distinction they're making between dualism and relativism. Mm-hmm. Dualism is the idea that things are that there, that there is moral. No, so that's relativism. So dualism oh, is sorry, yes, no, sorry, okay. black or white. Yeah, dualism is there's moral and amoral. And so that would be things like philosophers say, like, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's basically imagine the world of most dogmatic religions, right? Yes. Yes. It's an idea that there are clear cut good guys and bad guys in the world and that some of us do good and some of us do bad. Yes. Relativism says that morality is all relative to the society and the conditions that you're near or in right? right so for instance an example of this would be you're star you're a starving kid on the streets of some city and you steal a, a loaf of bread the dualist would say that you are amoral always you should never steal because it's an absolute moral choice right whereas the relativist would say you're starving you needed to survive you know, the relativist can have any kind of interpretation, right? All the way from, well, law and order is a is an illusion created by society, so you should just do whatever the hell you want, all the way to, you know, well, in the grand scheme of things, 
that loaf of bread is doing right. more good for you than it would do for that guy selling it. Or then the, yes. the, the 25 cents or whatever that it would do for the guy selling it. And so it, it, it basically spans the, spans the, the chasm of all kind of moral theories from Unitarian or, or uh, utilitarianism all the way to say uh, nihilism or, you know, um, right. Kind of existentialism or whatever. Whereas the dualist approach is really, again, this idea of there is a, there is a moral imperative. There is a, a strict code out there. Now who sets the code? Who knows? But that there should be a strict moral code that you should always follow. Right. And it's interesting because conspiracy theories mostly come from dualism. Yeah. It can be fueled and sort of influenced by relativism. Relativism could shade your views on certain interpretations of conspiracy theories, but conspiracy theories come from a reaction fear to something. Something is unknown. Something is different. It's, it's, you retreat from it and it becomes, it becomes a narrative that is easier to understand that's black or white. Well, and what's interesting too is that it, relativism itself is preached as a danger by a lot of conspiracy theorists. You know, yes. we, I mean, I mean, please today we're going to get into it on our, uh, on our 15 minute episode, but you know, the, uh, the argument against relativism, you know, that it's dangerous to be, to have relative morals or whatever. Like right. it's, it, it is part of the culture wars. You know what I mean? Really? Yes. And so it's yes. still, a, this is still a yes. fight that we're fighting. Yes. And it's just sublimated in very strange ways. Now. Right. Right. It's and not when, as, it's not as apparent. I think so. No. And, and when people talk about, when people talk about kind of, you know, the ivory tower, liberal elitism of colleges, right. they're, they're talking about moral relativism. Yes. You know, the morality. But they're talking about it in dualistic terms. Exactly. Right? It's very yes. simplistic terms. Yeah. Now, actually, what's interesting is, and I don't, I mean, it, maybe they go over this in the book, or maybe this is pointed out in the book, but actually, I think what Kaczynski is most clearly um, influenced by, or maybe mm -hmm. most clearly attacking, is the viewpoints of Henry Murray. And so Henry Murray is going to be so at this yes. point, at this point in time, Ted is a he's a sophomore. He's getting yes. through his gen ed curriculum. He's learning about kind of this this shift in morality and these questions and whatever. And it's it is a it is a very uncomfortable thing, I think, for a lot of students. I mean, I remember I remember my first uh, I remember my first philosophy course I ever took in college I had a great, a really great professor who became uh, really a mentor to me in my philosophy training. And it was this class that made me want to double major in philosophy. And so he, at the beginning of the class, he like, he handed, he took people's names on cards and then he spent the first, the first uh, session of class asking us questions about our opinions on things. And then essentially yeah. kind of, arguing with us and seeing how strongly or, you know, seeing what our viewpoints really were. And so it was for, it was, it was for existentialism was the class. And so one of the students, um, he, he told, he said to them, God is dead. How, you know, what do you think? Like, do, do you think God exists or not? Right. 
Mm-hmm. And the student argued, you know, he's like, well, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Christian. I was, you know, born whenever and just kind of giving, you know, the normal stuff, whatever. And mm-hmm. then the professor kind of started to push back and say, well, you know, but there's lots of guys like what if and this kid just got up and left? Yeah, he was well, like, I'm not having this. And he just think, left and never came back. If you think about college, though, in college now, like stepping back from general education curriculum of that time. College is when you start to you're you're living on your own, you're self-regulating and self-managing, you're exposed to a lot of different people and a lot of different ideas, and these classes are presenting information and challenging you in a way that you probably haven't been challenged previously. And that's right. what I think is such a huge I can't believe he got up and left. That's amazing. It was, it was, I can imagine that though. I could see that. It was intense. And so he left and the professor was like, well, I guess we're not getting that guy as a philosophy major. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, what? Hope he was pass fail. No, it's just, oh my goodness. And so, okay. So, um, so Murray. Yes. Kaczynski is introduced to Murray and Murray says to him, well, how would you like to be part of a study that I'm doing? So hey, the study, son, you seem pretty bright. <laughs> you seem well-adjusted and normal. How'd you like me to mess up your entire life? So the study itself, he's told that it's it, it pays pretty well to do it. It is going to be very important to science. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that he can stop whenever he wants, but they're not told. They're told initially it'll only take a year. Which but actually... So- so effed up. Actually, it's going to take three years. And so they're going to use these kind of the money. They're going to use the importance to science and how much help he's being and whatever mm-hmm. to, to coerce him and the other students who are part of this thing uh, to keep them in it. And so this is part of a a larger unethical series of experiments the government performed called MK Ultra. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not it's not super clear if this test is part of MKUltra itself or not. However, Henry Murray, the the psychologist, uh, had a long and storied history with the CIA and the OSS. Yes. So at this point in time, he was the head of the Harvard Psychological Clinic. Uh, and his research, his research centered on personalities and how personalities are developed and how they can be altered by our surroundings. And then it could, as a continuation of that, how our personalities dictate our actions and our motivations to do actions. And so really, Murray is kind of the foundational figure in a field of psychology known as personal. He called it personology, which is like terrible. I think it's a stupid mm-hmm. name, but it's really, it hit, you know, any kind of personality test you've taken for a job, any kind of one of those stupid things, you know, oh, I'm in J or whatever. All of that comes from what this kind this of. Called? That's called. What is this um, called? Oh, uh, the Myers-Briggs. Yeah. So they were also yeah. personologists, essentially they worked off of Murray's kind of works right later on. So this is you know, so awful. We're going to do a diatribe so, about them sometime. So Sorry. all of that, all of that comes from these kind of ideas that were developed around this time period. Now, so what he focused on was what's known as the dyad, what he called the dyad, which is the smallest social unit of two people. 
And how is it that the this unit of two people, the smallest social unit, can affect the way that our personalities are shaped, are changed, and can we get to the center of someone's personalities of someone's personality and thereby understand their motivations and how they will act in certain situations based on that interaction with another person. And so this work was of particular interest to the OSS or the office of strategic services. And so that is the original kind of version of the CIA. And so his first work for them actually was to try and develop a personality analysis of Adolf Hitler during world war two. And so actually his, his, uh, that, that, that work, um, suggested that Hitler would likely commit suicide, said that Hitler was likely homosexual, or at least had some kind of sexual, uh, sexual difficulties. Yeah. You know, something like fetishism or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. what homosexuality at that time was considered something like that. But so his general idea or kind of his general framework for, for personalities was that you have your personality is basically set up as different mixes of needs and their uh, kind of like you have, okay. Every single person has set needs that they need to meet. Right. Mm-hmm. And the amount and the way that we meet those needs dictates our behavior. And so this is really coming from again, really a very uh, naturalist view or kind of a not naturalist is maybe the wrong word, a very fundamental view of humans as machines, right? That we have certain needs that have to be met and the way that those are met develop everything else around us. And so he developed this idea of both primary and secondary needs. So the primary needs were called the viso or viscerogenic and the secondary were the psychogenic. So your primary needs is your physical needs. Things like you need uh, air, you need water, mm-hmm. you need uh, to be able to pee and poop and breathe and right all this other stuff. The secondary needs and the secondary needs work a very similar way to the primary needs are your psychic or your personality needs. And so these are seven. There's seventeen seventeen of them that belong to one of eight domains. So there's the need for ambition, for materialism, for status, for power, for sadomasochism, for social conformance, for affection, and for information. And so some of those you've probably heard about, right? The the drive for power Mm -hmm. is used a lot to understand, uh, let's say, people like Adolf Hitler, right? The need for social conformance is used to still develop Buffet lines and grocery store aisles and queue up, yeah, all these other things. There's big money in figuring that stuff out nowadays. Yeah, and so um, the way that your personality is developed is based on what are known as presses. And so these presses, what they do is they are basically environmental factors that that interact with you, and then your those presses determine which of your needs kind of gets clicked on, mm-hmm. right? Or which need you want to fulfill. And so you're always going to be trying to fulfill that need in some way. And so it's the need and that press from the environment. And there can be many of them at once that then dictate your behavior and your motivation to act. Yes. If that makes sense. It does. Right. 
We should just really quickly talk about um, why the OSS wanted to do this stuff. Like why MKUltra was funded, why it was important. Like why why does the government care about these things? Yeah, so the idea of these tests for Murray and why he was working with the OSS was that they wanted to develop in these studies a way to basically brainwash and mm-hmm. obtain information from the minds of either their own people or captured spies. Yes. And how, like, how can we make people into building blocks to understand how well and how susceptible they are to like clandestine operations? Right. Like, how the, can I, we, how can we build things? How can we motivate people? If we, if we take them down to these most basic needs and wants what makes somebody loyal what makes somebody act what's going to what's going to to actually make them a good soldier for something yeah. like this so these are actually these are the stated goals of mk ultra and this is from a document that was uh found by uh, uh what was the 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 churchill commission i want to say oh yeah 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 um, churchill yep churchill okay commission. so um mm-hmm. so these are the goals right so okay MKUltra was set up to obtain substances which will promote illogical thinking and impulsiveness to the point where the recipient would be discredited in public. Substances which increase the the efficiency of mentation and perception. Materials which will cause the victim to age faster, slower in maturity. Materials which will promote the intoxicating effect of alcohol. Materials which will produce the signs and symptoms of recognized diseases in a reversible way. Materials which will cause temporary or permanent brain damage and loss of memory. Substances which will enhance the ability of individuals to withstand privation, torture, and coercion during interrogation and so-called brainwashing. Materials Mm -hmm. and physical methods which will produce amnesia for events preceding and during their use. Physical methods of producing shock and confusion over extended periods of time and capable of surreptitious use. Substances which produce physical disablement. Substances which will produce a chemical that can cause blisters. Substances which alter personality structure in such a way the tendency of the recipient to become dependent upon another person is enhanced. A material which will cause mental confusion of such a type that individuals under its influence will find it difficult to maintain a fabrication under questioning. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Substances which will lower the ambition and general working efficiency of men. Substances which promote weakness or distortion of the eyesight or hearing, a knockout pill, which can be administered during, uh, via food or aerosols, and a material which can be surreptitiously administered, um, which in very small amounts will make it impossible for a person to perform physical activity. They were essentially trying to create, either through the use of drugs, through mm-hmm. the destruction and deconstruction of someone's personality, or through other you know, torture uh, yeah. sexual sexual yeah. torture you know they were trying to find a way basically to both make their agents completely impossible to break and find a way to break 
Yeah. The agents of another country. It's they wanted the control switch is how yes. I look at it. Right. They wanted the ultimate. How do we make these people do what we want them to do? Yeah. Whatever it is. I think an interesting thing to bring up at this point, um, the main, one of the main drugs they used LSD. Um, we didn't talk about it earlier, but Timothy Leary was at, uh, at was at Harvard. Harvard the same time. <laughs> yeah. He had the same he had uh, he had some sort of interactions with Murray. Well, Murray and was I, the head of the department, so his studies had to be But like, Timothy, we, yeah, it's we, like we, that's crazy. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. No, no, no. So we, you know, and so there's no like that's the thing with a lot of these things is that even say Kaczynski's records from these studies are still under seal. Like he, yeah. he was never able to receive them. The writer of this book net was not able to get them. Um, you know, so it's still, it's still highly kind of held close to the chest and there's still questions today about, you know, I mean, look at the, look at the Cuba, uh, the sound weapon, right. Or the supposed <laughs> sound weapon, like, Oh yeah, you know, that one. Yeah. No, the sonic you know, weapon. Yeah. So called you know sonic saying? weapon. Yes. There's a lot yes. of, there's a lot of things still that people wonder you know, well, is this could stuff, this be? Yeah, is could it still you do going this? on? And yeah, so, in sp- part sort of, of spycraft, really quickly right. too. Interesting thing about Timothy Leary. I mean, Timothy Leary had a lot of the same exposure that uh, Kaczynski ended up going through. However, what happened to him was totally different. Like he became sort of the cultural a cultural icon for the '60s and '70s with "Tune In, Turn On, and Drop Out." Right. Like that he was advocating not just leaving, not just leaving institutions like Harvard, but society in total. So still sort of that anti, anti-establishment, anti-industrialism, anti-everything mindset. But a lot of what MK Ultra started to foster and even I would argue um, the general education um, was the hippie movement. Right. Was the, was the whole rebirth of of this type of critical thinking, which is hilarious because they they these things were set That's up specifically to try to. Yeah, they were set up to Quell. control people yeah. and it didn't work. Right. What's what's fascinating with Leary, too, is that his so his work was specifically on the administration of uh, psilocybin, which is mm-hmm. the chemical that's in magic mushrooms and is the precursor to LSD. And so he was was part of two uh, especially interesting ones the Concord state prison experiment and the Marsh chapel experiment, which again, mm-hmm. these are, these are considered extremely unethical by today's standards. Um, I mean, by any yes. standards, by today's standards. Yes. And so in these experiments, what was going on was that these people were being administered uh, in the, in at least in the Marsh chapel experiment, they were told they would be taking this drug, but not what it would do. But so in these experiments, so in the first one, the Concord state prison experiment, they were administering uh, magic mushrooms to prisoners to see what effect it would have on their uh, recidivism rate, on their rate of mm-hmm. reoffending in public. Mm-hmm. It had no effect. Um, <laughs> you know, and then the, the Marsh Chapel experiment, they administered this drug to see if it would give people religious experience. And it, it did. It made a lot of people, um, you know, some, I mean, there were some famous theologians in the, in the group actually that would later say, you know, this was a transformative like this was the lightning bolt that made me feel like God was in my life. 
Mm-hmm. And so today, in the you know, in kind of modern science, we're starting to reassess the use of actually uh, psilocybin on things like, say, clinical depression that's uh, difficult to treat by other means, or on schizophrenia, or on other kinds of of things. But for a long time, it was really, I think, tarnished by its use medically was tarnished by these. Uh, clandestine experiments where in yes. some cases, I mean, in many cases they were administering these, du- in these drugs to unwitting subjects. They were just putting them in people's coffee yes. and seeing what they Testing did. Testing them on. Yes. On unwitting, like you said, unwitting towns. Yes. Uh, Absolutely inmates. Insanity. It's, Any, it's crazy. And, but the thing too, is I think what they did not have an understanding of was what are the long-term effects of these drugs? What, if you start to mix them with, other drugs, what happens? Like, I don't think that they had a very good roadmap (laughs) for any of that. Because it is, I, you know, in this book, in the Alton, uh, the Alston Chase book, he talks about how Murray was addicted to amphetamines. Well, I mean, you got Murray. He's the one that came up with, you don't get high on your own supply. He's the guy that (laughs) wrote that. He wrote that. But I mean, I think that it, there is something very, um, just if 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 nothing else, there is something very troubling about the person who is administering and working with college kids for three years being completely, completely out of control on quote unquote illicit substances. Well, at the time, they still thought amphetamines were like. They thought this was like the this was the pill that helped the Nazis, you know, continue their work or whatever. Right. Like whatever. We could do a whole episode. It was the Blitzkrieg. We could do a whole episode on amphetamines, not on amphetamines, we about could. amphetamines. Well, we could do we could do a whole we could do a whole episode on drugs. That would be hysterical. <laughs> All right. So this is a quote. Our, so so our, again, our mothers listen to this show. We can't. They sure that. do. We should so, be doing that. So no uh, electric Kool Aid acid test for us. <laughs> oh god okay so uh, Murray was again this test with, with Ted did not administer drugs it was purely based on personality deconstruction but so this is again a quote from the that Atlantic article so quote Murray's interest in the dyad which again if you remember is that, that social unit of two people however may have been more than merely academic the curiosity of this complex man appeared to have been held to have been impelled by two motives, one idealistic and the other somewhat less so. He lent his talents to national aims during World War II. Forrest Robinson, the author of a 1992 biography of Marie, wrote that during this period he flourished as a leader in the global crusade of good against evil. He was also an advocate of world government. Murray saw understanding the dyad, it seems, as a practical tool in the service of the Great Crusade in both its hot and cold phases. He had long shown interest, for example, in the whole subject of brainwashing. During the war, Murray served in the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA, helping to develop psychological screening tests for applicants and, according to Timothy Leary, monitoring military experiments on brainwashing. In his 1979 book, John Marks reported that General Wild Bill Donovan, the OSS director, called in Harvard psychology professor Henry Harry Murray to devise a system for testing the suitability of applicants to the OSS. 
Murray and his colleagues put together an assessment system that tested a recruit's ability to stand up under pressure, to be a leader, to hold liquor, to lie skillfully, Mm -hmm. and to read a person's character by the nature of his clothing. Murray's system became a fixture in the OSS. Mm. One of the tests that Murray devised for the OSS was intended to determine how well applicants withstood interrogations. As he and his colleagues described it in their 1948 report, Selection of Personnel for Clandestine Operations, Assessment of Men, the candidate immediately went downstairs to a basement room. A voice from within commanded him to enter, and on complying, he found himself facing a spotlight strong enough to blind him for a moment. The room was otherwise dark. Behind the spotlight sat a scarcely discernible board of inquisitors. The interrogator gruffly ordered the candidate to sit down. When he did so, he discovered that the chair in which he sat was so arranged that the full strength of the beam was focused directly on his face. At first, the questions were asked in a quiet, sympathetic, conciliatory manner to invite confidence. After a few minutes, however, the examiner worked up to a crescendo in a dramatic fashion. When an inconsistency appeared, he raised his voice and lashed out at the candidate, often with sharp sarcasm. He might even roar, you're a liar. Even anticipation of this test was enough to cause some applicants to fall apart. The authors wrote that one person insisted he could not go through with the test. They continued. A little later, the director found the candidate in his bedroom, sitting on the edge of his cot, sobbing. End quote. That's some good this, stuff. This is... Th- that is almost to the T, the test that was done to Kaczynski. So this is a quote... Uh, from a mental floss article that describes, I think kind of very well, the uh, what, what happened in that room. And so this is by Stacy Conrad from April 3rd, 2015, again from mental floss. So it says, quote, in the tests, Kaczynski and 21 other students were told to develop their personal philosophies on life. Then they would debate that philosophy against another undergraduate student who, as it turns out, this is not from this, Mm-hmm. As it turns out, though, was a was a lawyer, lawyer mm-hmm. was a trained lawyer. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, this was no friendly discourse. When they showed up to debate, the test subjects were attached to electrodes, seated in a chair facing a one-way mirror, and subject, subjected to hot, bright lights. The debate wasn't with a fellow undergrad at all, but a law student who had been told to go to town on the ideals of these young men. To make matters worse, they then had to watch a video of the argument after it was over which forced them to go through the humiliation all over again. Murray himself called them vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks, end quote. Can I read you something interesting about Murray himself? Absolutely. Which, to me, makes this even more ironic and interesting. Sure. And this was something that I I went back and found. Um, So... He was notorious for having a very thin skin. And the quote goes, some suggested that he feared to publish because it would expose him to criticism, which he couldn't tolerate. For he did indeed have a very thin skin. Invariability, inevitably, sorry, he, he made a charming initial impression, an extraordinary good listener. He could appear utterly enthralled by someone he just met. Yet at the first sign that this worship was not requited, he turned often cruelly on the other person. The great Murray wrote a former colleague 
didn't like anyone to leave him. He liked the one to he he liked to be the one to leave. And I think that that's like the book goes on to say that he took everything personally. And uh, so here, wait, here's another good one. Sorry. Um, he couldn't keep his feelings and science apart and was unable to decide whether he was a humanist exploring his own soul or a scientist studying the psyche, the psyches of others. Yeah. Not, I mean, overall just these tests. So he couldn't even stand up himself under that test under that kind of testing. No, of yeah. course not. Of course not. Because it must've been, you know, I think that's true for a lot of, um, you know, I mean, science, science is very personal, right? I mean, we like to think of it as we say it a lot on the show, mm-hmm. right? We, we like to think of it as this kind of a uh, separate thing from our personalities, or our behavior, but really it is science, not science <laughs> and scientists are human, right? So, you know, um, the idea that his ideas would have been greatly developed by his personal, the fact that he himself couldn't undergo this kind of uh, evaluation probably had a lot to do with why he developed it in the first place. Yeah, you know so what I mean? To say well, he's why, there you fixed know, on speed, putting a bunch of kids <laughs> through this for, you know, lying to them and putting the, you know, putting them through it for three years. It's like, Wow. Okay, sorry. Well, so so what you can imagine then is, you know, and again, these these went on for hours, these sessions. Mm. And you're under a hot light. You're strapped into a chair. You got this guy just berating you, just just picking apart all of your ideas about, you know, you're stupid, you're silly. You know, you're so naive mm-hmm. to think this stupid thing, uh, just tearing, tearing these these students apart. And then afterwards, you have to watch mm. your humiliation again. You can't leave the room, right? And this was all developed to see how you withstood I mean, torture, personality torture. And really, I think you see the effects of this, first off, distinctly in how Ted changed in Harvard after that point, but also in the way that his worldview gets crystallized into almost the antithesis of what Murray likely believed. Right. And, and also yeah. taking into this. So again, this idea here about what Murray's idea was is uh, let's take the example of, of food, right? Mm-hmm. You have a need to take in food. And so you'll become hungry and depending on these, the, the factors around you, you know, you will develop different means of action to satisfy that need for food. So if you're near a river, maybe you'll go fishing. Or if you're in a forest, maybe you'll pick berries. Or if you're in a, uh, an area where there's a lot of predation, maybe mm-hmm. you'll scavenge. Or right? if, if you're in Chicago, you get a hot dog or pizza. Yeah. Yeah, you know, who, or get, you know, get uh, inferior pizza to East Coast pizza, oh. right? To New York pizza. Like, maybe you do that. Cold. Maybe, maybe do that bad thing. So, Our own psychological warfare. So, uh, the idea with these psychic needs is that you also have psychic needs, like the need for affirmation. And so, you will try to find some way to be affirmed to be told mm-hmm. you're good to be told that you're doing a good thing you're 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 doing great sweetie 
You know, <laughs> you're going to try to find that need. You're going to find a way to fill that need some way. And depending on the social pressures around you, you will find a way to meet that need in different ways. And now all of us have those needs that we have to fulfill in some way, but some of us have different ratios of those needs. So, you know, some of us are maybe more ambitious than others. And maybe that suggests that we have those of us that are more ambitious have more of a drive for power or a drive for affirmation. Right. Yes. So we all have them and our society instills in us different, you know, in some ways it's a circular kind of system where your social pressures and your upbringing and whatever, as well as your brain chemistry dictate how those needs will be developed. And then over time, those needs are are continuously reinforced by your social pressures around you, right? Yes. All the way through corporate America where you do the Myers-Briggs. Well, exactly, we just had right? one that, yeah, talking about like yeah. ambition and how do you motivate someone? Right. And so, well, and so that's, all of that came from Murray, right? And so. Sick bastard. And so here's, here, here are the needs that he has, right? And so. He is a a need for and then the representative behavior that suggests this, right? So the need for superiority is represented by uh, to seek validation of power, okay? The need for achievement is to accomplish difficult tasks. The need for recognition is to get praise and commendation. The need for exhibition is to impress others through one's actions and words, even if these are shocking. The need for acquisition is to have possession of an object, the need for conservance is to maintain the condition, right? So we're mm-hmm. going to skip some of these because some of these are not important. But so the the need for infavoidance is to avoid failure and humiliation. Mm. The need for defendants is to defend oneself against attack or blame. The need for <laughs> seclusion is to be isolated from others. The need for dominance is to control one's own environment. The need for autonomy is to resist the influence of others and strive for independence. And then the next, I think, really kind of important one here is the uh, need for aggression, which is to forcefully overcome, control, punish, or harm someone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, no yeah. he, Kaczynski will, will write in the manifesto about how society pressures people into being a certain way that people's personalities naturally want to be a certain way and that society causes them to kind of uncomfortably fit into this box of technology so that technology is no longer being molded to fit the needs of humans but the other way around is happening where humans are being fit to the needs of technology so you can imagine the argument would be something like it, it's a, it is again a very famous Karl Marx quote, right? Um, society with the wheelbarrow gives us uh, serfdom and feudalism. Society with the coal steam engine gives us capitalism. That technology in some way is shaping human behavior in a way that wasn't the case before. Mm-hmm. And so this is again from Harvard and the making of the Unabomber in the Atlantic quote. This evolution towards a civilization increasingly dominated by technology and the power structures serving technology, the manifesto argues, 
cannot be reversed on its own because technology is a more powerful social force than the aspiration for freedom. And because while technological progress as a whole continuously narrows our sphere of freedom, each new technical advance considered by itself appears to be desirable. Hence, science and technology constitute a mass power movement, and many scientists gratify their need for power through identification with this mass movement. Therefore, the technophiles are taking us all on an utterly reckless ride into the unknown. Because human beings must conform to the machine, our society tends to regard as a sickness any mode of thought or behavior that is inconvenient for the system. And this is plausible because when an individual doesn't fit into the system, it causes pain to the individual as well as problems for the system. Thus, the manipulation of an individual to adjust him to the system is seen as a cure for a sickness and therefore is good. End quote. It's like he's reading... <laughs> You know, he's using words mm -hmm. that Murray used in his writings, right? Mm -hmm. He's talking about the need for power, mm -hmm. the need for dominance, the need for uh, freedom and how in modern society, the need for power is being over or the need for freedom is overcome by the need for power and dominance right. over right. nature. Right. But you are almost subservient to something that is never going to be, uh, you're never going to be able to get past, right? It's always, again, technology is always going to, to never serve you. You will always serve it. Exactly. And that's why he, and it's that's almost, why he basically, that's why he basically says it has to be violent. It has to be, yeah. you know, he basically, it has to be a jarring effect. Yeah. Basically what he'll argue in the manifesto is that, um, this system will collapse eventually based just on the, you know, society will become so, desperate and so unhappy that the society will by by necessity collapse in on itself for yeah, something better because even if you think about moore's law about improvement for you know for for just with technological advances like it gets that much faster it gets that it well yeah it so is that, able to move that much quicker but you're you will always no matter how advanced you are as a person you will never get past that well, so yeah, so it's you diminishing know? returns. It's diminishing yeah. returns, or like you're, like what you're saying. Yeah. He's ar he's arguing that okay, the first technological advancement, you know, cures polio, and that helps mm -hmm. way more people than it hurts. Mm -hmm. The new technical advancement, you know, I get to see Kylie Jenner on my Facebook feed, and I get to sell my privacy, right? Like, you know, the the benefit, <laughs> the cost and benefit. We've just turned a corner into arguing no. Pro, no, I'm just joking. No, no, no but so, yes, I agree yeah, with you. I agree the, with you. The cost benefit of technology diminishes over time. And so his argument would be, and this is the argument again, like reading this from the point of view of someone who is anyone who's read any kind of philosophy, anyone who's really been involved in, say, like, you know, just academic thinking, anyone who's going to gone to college could write the manifesto. It's, you know, these aren't, these aren't particularly like, that's the thing that's so fascinating about this is how mm -hmm. shallow the thoughts really are. Do you know what I mean? Oh well, yeah. But I do also think that there's, there is something to it. Like the interesting no, thing about Kaczynski was that he did predate like Silicon Valley, right? He predated sort of what we could see as technology actually surpassing the good of people, even, no, no. even beyond like a singularity or something like that. Right. It's like, like you said, like, 
Facebook and privacy and things, and, you know, and, and possible possible um, overturning of democracies. I mean, that's that's really what, you know, I, he couldn't have foreseen, but he did in, in a lot of ways. I think, too, interestingly, I don't know if he is – if his viewpoint in this manifesto is a rebuking of Murray as much as it is almost a um, a springboard or he's actually taken everything that this did to him and is just, you know, double barreling it back on, on the system that, on the system that was Harvard, on the system that, that let somebody come to power to do this. And it's, I think that there is, you know, I before reading this and even having this discussion, I didn't give as much credence to this um, event as as I am now. I think it's interesting that other people. It would be really interesting to find out, like the dudes who weren't Kaczynski that went through this whole thing. Right? How did they turn out? How did they yeah. turn out? They're all investment bankers. No, I'm joking. I don't know. Well, right? What's congressmen think- and investment bankers? <laughs> what's interesting is. So I guess first off, so one thing mm-hmm. first, hmm. I guess what I meant is that looking at it from today's point of view, mm-hmm. it appears shallow, but you're right. At the time he was basically part of the general, this was, this was well within the realm of academic normalcy, mm-hmm. right? This mm-hmm. manifesto does not, you know, the turn to violence is the part that makes it, um, the turn to violence is the part that makes it clear that he is, uh, you know, not well, yes. not, you know, not well in the sense that any criminal is not well. Right. 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 But the, th- the thoughts themselves at the time and even today, you know, at the time were still somewhat revolutionary and interesting and whatever, but today are very passe because this is the argument that we've, you know, philosophers have been making this argument for the last 30 years, you know? So, Anyways, um, this, and I think, I think the other point that I wanted to make was, I think you're right that he's not necessarily, um, he's using Murray's ideas, Mm -hmm. right? He's clearly Mm -hmm. drawing from those ideas. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think he's trying to refute Murray's ideas themselves about the, the psyche and our personalities. Mm -hmm. What I think he's arguing against I think Murray in some ways had the idea that, and maybe this is just a misreading of him, but I don't think he would have been involved in these tests about personality and everything else. If he didn't believe that technology, you know, the ends justified the means. Well, but you would be able to control someone I think is where he made the big mistake. Like we're going to break MK ultra and Murray. We're going to break someone down and then we are going to be able to do whatever we want with them. And they're going to be controllable. I think that's the error in a lot of ways because they broke someone down and they lost control over what this person was capable of doing. Right. Well, that, well, the idea that we could use these societal pressures and things on someone, Kaczynski is essentially saying, well, then I just won't be part of society. (laughs) You know, like that's fine with me. And actually in the, in the Netflix series about the Unabomber, the making of the Unabomber, Mm-hmm. He even mentions to, and you know, we're going to get into this more when we talk about the FBI hunt for him and everything else. But he talks about, you know, the perfect example of Marie's theories is you're driving home at night. It's 3 a.m. There's no one on the road. 
and you see a red light on the road in front of you. Do you stop at the red light? Why? <laughs> Why would you? Right? There's no there's no reason to stop at the red light. There's no cars coming. It's 3 a.m. You're the only mm-hmm. one on this road. Right? You're not going to get caught. You're not harming anyone by going through the light. But most people won't. Most people will stay at the red light. Mm-hmm. And they'll feel bad if they go through the red light. Myself included, by the way. Oh, me too. Oh, my right? God. Yeah, no. You know, but that's that's society's coercive action on you. That's that's a pressure from society acting on your need for conformance, right? Or your need to be uh, just, lawful. Yes, exactly. Me buying into the idea of the social good. I'm going to stop right. at this red light because if I don't, I could hurt someone else. Even if there's no one out there, I still will be responsible. Right. But I think that's a big part of the, the idea mm-hmm. of the manifesto, too, is that that itself is just a story you're telling. It's yourself, an illusion. Right. Yeah. Yes. So. All right. So anyways, we're going to we're going to break apart our own fear. You know, we're going to break apart our own psyches next episode a little bit more. I'm but so, moving okay. to Montana, people. So he he then he then so he freshman year, he's normal. The next three years, he spends at Elliott House in a seven-person suite with a bunch of guys that come to know him as just a total weirdo, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, the, and this is the thing, too. These seven people were like a ragtag group in this house full of the richest, preppiest pers- people at Harvard. Yeah. Right? So this is actually a quote from one of his suite mates from uh, the New York Times article that we've been quoting throughout the series. He goes, quote, Ted's room had a good view of the river, but I never saw anybody live in such an unkempt place, Mr. McIntosh said. In some places, the papers and such were a foot deep. That disturbed me that someone could live in such filth. The worst part was when it began to smell. Maybe it was rancid milk. End quote. <sighs> he becomes, like, his views on, uh, on society on wanting to become a recluse, on wanting to move out into the wilderness are crystallized in this time period. There's, that's without doubt. Yeah. You know, that this is really the yep. period that, it, that brings him out. And this difference between his freshman year and his continued, continued kind of, you know, almost dissolution yeah. into this other person that we would know as the Unabomber is, I think, is very, very fascinating. You know, and so, I, you know, again, we can't say for certain, I don't think anyone can say for certain, and this is true of anyone's life, that this was the defining moment. Right? His mother thought it was hives. Other authors now think it is this, these tests on Henry Murray. Mm-hmm. Next mm-hmm. episode, there's going to be something else that we'll point to. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, or was he always going to be? the Unabomber, right? Was this an inevitable, an inevitable thing that if it wasn't hives, if it wasn't this, if it wasn't that he would have done, he would have been this person or does this person exist in anyone? And it just takes the right amount of coercion to bring it out. Right. The, the push to make you right. Yes. In this person. Or uh, even, yes, yes. Not us. We're fine. <laughs> oh, we're totally fine. So, um, okay, so then he um, he graduates. 1962, mm-hmm. he graduates. Hooray! 
and he decides to go off to graduate school. And so this is where we're going to pick up next episode is graduate school, his mathematics work and his descent into bombings and kind of how that happens, which is going to be a lot of fun. Now, actually, I wanted to close out this episode with some funny anecdotes. So he actually was really funny in all of the Harvard yearbooks for like, um, you know, like the 20th reunion and whatever. So for the 20th, the 20th, re- so uh, by the way, so he graduated with a degree in mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, he just turned 20. God. He never said anything really. Again, that autobiography was never published. Right. He's, he's, he doesn't really say a lot about Harvard or his classmates or whatever, besides, you know, I kind of liked it, whatever. He, he does explicitly say he did not like the testing of Murray and would like those records released. But I think a part of that is more, he wants to know what Murray thought of him. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I bet you're right. So for the 20th and 25th reunions of Harvard class of 62, he listed his address as 788 Banchet Pesh Kadar Kel Afghanistan. And then for the 50th reunion, while he was in prison as the Unabomber, he uh, he actually also wrote in about himself. So he wrote Theodore John Kaczynski, home address number 04475-046, U.S. Penitentiary Max, P.O. Box 8500, yeah. Florence, Colorado, occupation prisoner, house slash dorm, Elliot, degrees, a Bachelor of Arts, uh, 62, a master's degree from the University of Michigan in 65, and then a Ph.D. in 67, Publications, technical slavery, awards, eight life sentences issued by the United States District Court for the Eastern District of California, 1998. Wow. So is he being funny or is he being serious because he does feel like he needs to have that recognition? I think he's being hilarious. Well, I mean, it is hilarious. I would hope that's the case. But then, you know, that's a God. That being a little arch, being a little arch, being a little arch. I will give you that. <laughs> Anyways, good. He, lost right. that, he lost that milkiness. I'll, I will say this, you know, there's no milkiness coming no, out that, of that at Harvard grad. <laughs> that milk curdled into a hard edge. <laughs> it did, right. and it stunk up the joint, clearly. Jesus Christ. All <laughs> right, dear listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode, three of four on the Unabomber. Uh, as always, Ooh. this episode is copyright the Mad Scientist Podcast and Damage Hippie Productions. Stay in school? <laughs> or move to the woods, <laughs> I guess. I don't really know. <laughs> Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. We love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our 
Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 